Okay, welcome to the NYU Wagner Review podcast series. I'm Kyle Rowland. Today on the podcast, we have Jacqueline Spade. Jacqueline, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Kyle. Okay, so Jacqueline is here to discuss with us urban planning, the concept of urban planning. Uh, Jacqueline, actually, we didn't even catch up if you are a NYU Wagner student, if you're an alumni, if you're incoming. So um, you want to just take a moment, give a little bit of a, of a background, that'd be great. Sure. So I am a current NYU student going into my second year in the urban planning program. I'm also a full-time student. Um, so this is kind of my, my world for this year, for the past year, and for the previous years since this is kind of also what I studied as an undergrad student in um, Massachusetts. I'm currently focusing on international development planning within the concentration. Okay, so, so this is a um, NYU Wagner, uh, Department of NYU Wagner or division. This is an urban planning school, um, slightly different than the uh, nonprofit management school. But you want to touch a little bit on the difference because I think most people are familiar with the public and nonprofit management school. You want to talk about the, the way it's different? Sure. So the urban planning program is an accredited program, which basically means after we graduate, we can work for a few years in the field and then apply to the American Planning Association to become an American Institute certified planner which is basically a certification that says that we pledge to hold a high standard of ethics, professional conduct, and standard of practice. Um, and within our program, we really focus more about kind of the groundwork of the cities. And it could be cities because we're at NYU, that's pretty much our focus. Um, but other programs can focus on suburban areas or regional areas or even rural areas. There's a lot of different areas you can specify within urban planning. NYU focuses on the city because we're city-based. Um, so we focus on all different aspects and basically kind of the public uses that make up the city versus the PMP program, which can focus on public health. It can focus on management, international development. Um, I believe there's also the social impact uh, department, which focuses on how corporations can really be uh, a partner in kind of changing how the world works for the better. Um, we focus on how the city can work for the people of the city and make the world better in that way. We focus on how um, transportation can help with different things like job distribution, housing distribution, things like that. Um, we also have a focus on the environment. So it's a really kind of holistic approach from the ground up, literally and figuratively. Right, and, and I, that's why I'm actually really excited to talk with you about this because I think that a lot of people don't really realize how interconnected they are with the urban planning discipline. Um, you guys take it as an academic discipline or as a professional discipline, but like really what you guys are kind of analyzing is how do we shape and form the lived experience of everybody um, whether they're in a city or a rural district or just anybody on the planet, really. Um, but I don't think a lot of people have had the opportunity or really take a moment to look at how urban development, how housing, how zoning, how the, just the structure of the city or the structure of the place where they're living has a role in all of this. Um, so uh, maybe you can take it from there and open up the floor and just discuss a little bit about that. Yeah, so I think um, 
if someone has some sort of knowledge of what urban planning is, they kind of hear about plan development and some of the earliest plan developments. And I think the ones that stick out the most are probably Levittown, um, which was a plan development post-World War II for veterans coming home. It was a subdivision style development, meaning houses were kind of cookie cutter in a row in circular pattern built in a mass produced way. Um, and so I think that that's kind of like the first thing that people think about if they think about urban planning. Um, but what I, I don't think that people always kind of consider is really when we develop a neighborhood, what that means as far as how we figure out transportation in there, what considerations we have for the physical environment that it's going in, where it's being built in location to uh, other businesses, other opportunities, um, where it's being built in consideration to school systems, first response systems, so like hospitals, things like that. And even just general like plumbing and electricity and public works facilities. And so when we, when we think about urban planning from just like kind of a basic idea, we have to kind of consider every single aspect of it. So it's kind of a hard thing to say, hey, we're going to take this really big thing and you have to consider everything. So there are a lot of different specializations within it to kind of have a focus on this one area because it is so large of a subject matter and it really does affect people from a very generational perspective. Um, it affects opportunities that people can have in life. And so I think that that's why a lot of the conversations are now being talked about how cities are formed, how cities work, how cities are discriminatory or exclusionary, especially with like the BLM movement and how that really plays a role in someone's life in a very either uh, great way or a very detrimental way. So in talking about the protests that are happening worldwide and people fighting for equality, urban planning is really now, without officially being called urban planning, is really now being talked about in, I think, a very passionate way without some of the maybe technical terminology. So I don't think that people are identifying one with the other. So it's interesting to see how it'll all shift um, from an academic perspective and from a actual practice perspective. Um, and I think, you know, just thinking about the history of urban planning, you kind of have to just go back to city planning in general and think about how our cities were formed from a very step-by-step -step perspective, even from like the 1800s and 1900s and how discrimination really played a role in where we built, who we built for and how we built buildings for them. Um, so thinking about some of the early examples like in Atlanta, which is obviously an area where a lot of protests have happened, uh, especially recently with the BLM movement. In that city alone, they had districts that were designated based on your race. So in, I think like the early 1920s, they had an R1 and an R2 district. R1 being a white district, R2 being a black district, or as they called it then, uh, a colored district. And that really laid the formation of the city and the foundation of where people were forced to live. And that stayed on until kind of just recently, I mean, that was like the basis of where planning stayed and the planning maps and the zoning maps. Um, so even if we think about urban planning of like current context, we have to really think about how historic urban planning has affected the way a city is formed.
what's interesting now is there is a little bit of a history of, of city development. And every year that goes by, there is more history of city development. And you can look back and see, okay, how has this policy or how has this development impacted this region in what way? Was this something that is positive for society? Is this something broadly that is negative for society? Um, city planning, urban planning has the potential to have either impact. And so maybe we can um, just bring up some examples so people can relate to it. So I used to live in Los Angeles, and now I live in New York City, where Robert Moses is the urban planning celebrity, notorious maybe. Um, in, in Los Angeles, um, it's understood how the design of freeways in terms of um, acting as barriers between regions and neighborhoods as well as access points to get to another neighborhood in terms of uh, commuting and its impact on the ability to police a region, all ends up having an impact on the development of that neighborhood and the livelihood of the people. So are there any other examples that people can relate to as they are walking down the street and they can see how urban planning does have an impact on uh, their actual livelihoods? Yeah, so um, speaking of like New York City, one of the big things that I think New York City is kind of known for is Central Park and Prospect Park. Um, and obviously we know Frederick Law Olmsted Sr. helped develop those parks and they're amazing, but um, some context around that, because you have such a beautiful large park and all this green space, it's considered an ideal place to live. So we have properties around those parks that are extremely expensive. We have properties around those parks that are highly sought after. And then we have areas that don't have green spaces, um, which are maybe a little bit more in the city, like the Bronx doesn't have a huge large park like Brooklyn does or like Manhattan does. So you have places where we call them concrete or cement jungles. Um, and you have homes that aren't as sought after because there is no public park, there is no green space. And then you have the health effects of that. So if you have the green space around you, you can go out, you can exercise, you can get fresh air. It helps take away some of the pollution in the air from the city congestion. So you have a lot of positive effects of being by this park. Again, it's very sought after, which means it's gonna be very expensive, which means you have only a small group of people who could afford to live in that area. And then you have areas, like I said, like the Bronx, where you might not have a public park space. So you have like small spaces. So you don't have the ability to take uh, your family members, your kids, your relatives to a park. There's going to be more congestion in the air and there's going to be more pollution in the air because you don't have something to absorb that kind of bad pollutant air. So then you have the negative health effects of that. And then within that, you also have some of the physical health effects, like not having a place to exercise. So you can see increased rates of obesity from childhood to adulthood. You can see increased rates of uh, lung issues, so asthma being the primary one because you're taking in a lot more pollutants. You don't have trees to kind of cleanse the air. And then you're seeing a lot of psychological issues in areas that don't have a green space because they're just constantly surrounded by concrete. And we have seen studies that show being near nature is 
psychologically better for you. It is better for you to get out in nature. That's why it's a big thing that people have been promoting even through the pandemic. If you have a park, try and get there, stay six feet away, wear a mask, things like that. And then there's the heat effect too. Being by a park, you can see the maps of Central Park and how much cooler the park is in comparison to the neighborhood directly around it. So when we have heat waves, like what New York City was just going through, and you don't have a green space to get in, and you don't have an area to cool off, now you're at risk of heat stroke. So that's why they'll have cooling centers within areas that don't have kind of these like public spaces for people to cool off. And so you have all of these different effects just from having one park either in your favor or not in your favor. So when we think about New York City, we can kind of think, what are the housing prices of those areas? Who is living in those areas and what the demographic of those areas are? And typically they're white uh, prevalent people. And in areas where you don't have the parks, unfortunately they're disadvantaged communities and often communities where they have a high percentage of people of color. So there's a big disparity there just with having a park. That's not even talking about transportation. It's not talking about the type of housing that's there. It's just, is it green space? Is there not green space? Um, and it's like that kind of throughout the area. If you are familiar with Boston, it's the same way. Houses along the green belt are going to be more expensive than houses not along the green belt because parks, green spaces are considered a luxury. They're considered an amenity that we talk about when we talk about where do we want to live? We want to live near a park. So if we're trying to relate it to just like a basic level, that would be, I think, the biggest, easiest way to think of what it looks like to have some sort of planning and what it looks like to not have some sort of planning when it comes from even just like the green spaces at the basic level. Right, and, and these seem like feedback mechanisms too, where um, multi-generational feedback mechanisms, where it's not just that there's a first order effect of a park making somebody exercise more, but there are, it's a park making someone exercise more, building habits within that person who then they pass on to their community, to their children, to their family. And there are, there is much greater effects than just like the immediate um, interaction with that park, it seems like. Um, yeah. The other thing, the other thing that I find very actually perplexing about urban planning is that if you were to start with a completely blank slate for a city, you could design a city that you imagine being a perfect utopia. Uh, you actually kind of see that in New York when you visit the West Village and there's all these jagged streets and you're like, oh wow, that's the old Amsterdam model. Or and then you see like the avenues straight up and down trying to have this like hyper-efficient model. But what do you do when cities are already built? How do you, you're not developing a city, but you're redesigning how a city works. So like, how does, how do you approach that problem when you're kind of like fixing a, a spare tire on a bus that's already moving, you know? Yeah. So I think one of the big things is that it's also the concept, which I completely agree with in some aspects, but not at the same time is that a city is already completely built because yes, that's totally true. Like New York city is built. It, it's not, a blank slate by any means, but they're constantly doing new development. Um, so there's still a lot happening there. And, and even in Boston, we had a huge, huge development just happen in the Seaport District, which really was kind of this perfect opportunity. It was basically a blank slate. They had spent so many years cleaning up the land, making sure that they could do something really great with this land. And what they did was 
very short of great. Um, and basically they just followed a traditional discriminatory exclusionary style of planning where the average house or rental condo, I should say for a studio is at least like 32 to 3,500. Um, and for a two bedroom, meaning something appropriate for a family is well over $4,000 a month. So that is the average style apartment in the seaport. You have very few businesses owned by person of color. Um, I remember doing a big project on it, I think 2018, so not too long ago. And at that point, there were only two condos purchased by someone of color in the entire seaport district. So you see a very, very, very segregated area. And they had a perfect opportunity because it was completely blank slate. And they chose to do this because they can, because they know that this is a model that works. And it really has to start from the ground level of what does the community want and how can we answer the call to the community when we do development? So in an area like the seaport where you had a blank slate, it was really an opportunity to listen to the community and say, hey, what is it that you're looking for? What is it that our city needs? And how can we fill those voids? One of the big voids should have been affordable housing. One of the big voids should have been an inclusionary style development where it was meant for families. It was meant for people of all races. It was meant for people of all ages and ability levels. What we got was not that. And that happened because even from the meetings to discuss what the area was going to be like, they were held on boats and you had to get tickets to go to this meeting on a boat and then the boat went away. So if you couldn't make the time in the meeting, you couldn't even stop in midway because it was on a boat and the boat went away. So we were already talking about being very exclusionary and the voices that we're listening to. When we think about an area like New York City, it's kind of still the same thing because we have areas that want to redevelop their streets. We have areas that are tearing down buildings that are either blighted or just old or just want to be torn down because the developer knows that they can make money. And we're still not listening to the community in their needs. What are the needs? Are we meeting them? Or are we just saying, how can we make a profit? And a lot of the development is really based on how can we make a profit? And you know, most developers only need 20 to 30 years to make a profit. So they're just going to put up what they want to put up and let it go. So we're still not listening to the community. We're still not putting in affordable housing. We're still not putting in inclusionary development unless it's you know mandated by the state. But a lot of times they skirt around that. Um, so you have to say like, what can you do in a place like New York City where we think it's already developed and then we see all these buildings going up constantly? We can really just listen to the community. But then we have to listen to the whole community and not just the community within a few blocks of each other. So I think that that's the big thing is like, what voices are we taking in? And are we actually listening to them or are we just like giving them ear service where we're like, yes, we're hearing you, we're going to do this, and then we move on. When you have a blank slate like you have in Boston or had, I should say, or what you have in the Midwest, what you have in the Southwest, especially in Texas and all these big cities there, this is your opportunity. Really listen to them and really make a change. When you have something built up like Los Angeles, like New York City, like Miami, where you don't have all those huge opportunities for blank slate development, you can still do a ton. You can say, hey, I don't need this to be of like million dollar condos. I could have them be $500,000 condos or a few million dollar condos and 
two thirds of it can be affordable housing. I could do that. Whether I'm going to or not is a different story from the developer's side, but we could say like, hey, this is an opportunity. This building's going up. We need affordable housing. We're gonna tell you you need to put affordable housing in here. You don't need another million dollar condo. So I think that that's kind of what could be done, what isn't being done. But I, I, I don't want people to think like, oh, my city's developed. There's nothing I can do now because there's so much that still happens regardless of how built up your city is. It's just trying to get your voice heard. And I think that that's a huge barrier that a lot of people face in developing is just getting their voice heard. Are they able to go to the meetings? Are the meetings exclusionary? Are they at times that the public can go to to be heard? You mentioned budget here being a limiting factor um, as well as interests. What other limiting factors are there typically in, in the in the production of a project that in your opinion would be fruitful for a, for a neighborhood? Yeah, so, so we talked a little bit about zoning or at least mentioned zoning earlier. Zoning is a huge thing that can be a barrier or be a help in a development. Um, so for those who aren't familiar with zoning, zoning regulations basically dictate what can go in a certain area. And a lot of times they're with the public health in mind. So you wouldn't have a heavy industrial business like a sewage plant or a power plant right next to a residential area because that's not going to be a great place for someone to live. It's also not going to be healthy for them to live. So we have separation of the two districts. And then there's something like a buffer zone. You would have sewage plant and then maybe just a standard uh, shipping plant, which has less of a negative health impact on a community. And then maybe you have commercial businesses, and then residential areas. So when we think about um, something that can help people, we think about zoning and how that can work in the favor of development. But it can also block a lot of really great development because we could say, hey, this area is zoned for single family development, meaning one house, yard, one house, yard, instead of being what the community means, which is more multifamily development like an apartment building, like a townhouse, like a condo building. So I think that that's a huge barrier, but it can also be a really great thing and say like, this was zoned for single family houses and that's no longer what our community is. Our community needs more multifamily housing. We need to rezone the area to allow for multifamily housing development to happen, which can then bring in money into the area because you're gonna have development happen. You're going to have condos, apartments, townhouses, um, public housing going up. So you're bringing in jobs and you're filling the need of the community. But if we're still saying, even though the community needs multifamily housing, and we're not going to abide by that, what the community needs, we're going to do what we want to do because that's currently what it's zoned as. And we're going to just put up a few single family homes. Then you're kind of not taken into consideration what the community wants. And that's really where a lot of tension happens is that balance between what the community needs and what the city regulators say that the community needs or what developers want to do with the space and what they legally have a right to do versus what we want to change to do. Yeah, because cities change. So if a zone was developed with a specific intention at one point in time, the city with a specific need for that, as a response to a specific need within the city, the city can change and there can be new needs. And just because the policies or the laws or the legislation was enacted previously, you don't want to be held to that rigidity 
that prevents you from doing actually what needs to be done. Yeah, and I think that that's really where we see a lot of discrimination happening. And I think that that's where we see a lot of developers taking advantage of the system that we have put in place. From a very historic perspective, zoning was always just very exclusionary. What it should have been for, and I think what the kind of intention was, was again to make it so that the community had its needs met with safety in mind. So again, we didn't have high industry style businesses right next to residential. And we also had um, kind of a standard of what we wanted the community to look at or look like, which is where you get into that exclusionary and discriminatory perspective. But, you know, it, it can be a really great thing. It can be really great for a community if you update zoning to match what your community needs. And a lot of times that doesn't happen. And so you still have these ideas put in place in like the 1940s through the 1960s, even the 1980s and 90s, like communities change so, so quickly. And if we're still using old zoning practices, we're not helping our community grow. So that's where it can be really great. We can change this district um, in Framingham, which is, and the downtown district had a large industrial presence for many, many, many decades. It no longer has that presence. So now you just have a lot of empty lots, but you have a growing population and a growing need for housing. So what they have done is they have rezoned some of those industrial districts that have no longer been used for industrial uses for many years into residential districts because that's what the community needs. That's what the community also wants. They want more housing. It's also close by to the public transportation line there. So you have an ability to meet a need that the community is saying that they need, and you have an ability to bring some business to the area because if you're next to transportation, like public transportation, you're gonna have business wanting to go in there. You're gonna have housing development want to go in there. You're going to have mom and pop shops wanting to go in there because people can easily access it. So that's a really great way that zoning can be used. It can also be used in a really terrible way of saying, hey, we want our neighborhood to have a minimum lot size of 20,000 square foot for a multifamily home, which is a really big lot size. And if you can't abide by that, you can't build here. And if you can't afford to buy a property like that, you can't live here. So it goes very both ways, um, which is I think one of the biggest things that urban planners have to contest with is are they trying to actively change something for the better or are they trying to stick within that traditional way of urban planning that is not holistic? And I think that's where you're seeing a lot of the transition happening, even in our education as an urban planner and what we're thinking about the city as a whole um, and the practice of urban planning. Hopeful that a lot of the protests will actually start to bring up some of these issues of inclusionary zoning and inclusionary urban development but it is very slow going, unfortunately. Is there is there like a, so now we have all these examples of projects that have had, you know, X project that has Y results, X project that has had Y results. Is there a, any consensus now being developed within the urban planning discipline of like really what works? Like, is there a design consensus broadly that is being out there or is there still a lot of competing theories about uh, short-term, long-term, what is going to have the most positive impact and you know what what sort of like sovereignty should communities have over like the preservation of what they've built so far 
Yeah, so I think the easy answer is no, there isn't any sort of consensus. And the complicated answer is because it's such a case-by-case basis. And I think it's actually good that there isn't a general consensus of like what works, because what you would have is a very cookie cutter, this is what works plan, and we're going to replicate it into all these different areas when it might not actually work for that area. So that's why the, the easy answer is no, there's no consensus. Within that, the other aspects are unfortunately sometimes politically based and economically based and what you view as important. And if you want a town to stay within this kind of traditional look that it's had, I think that that also has a big effect on it. Where you, But you have certain safeguards like historic districts. Historic districts are put in place to make sure that the history of this area is kept intact and not just torn down for large development. So that can be like a really great thing. But again, it can also mean limited development so it can hurt a community. I would say some things that are kind of the general thought is cities are really great. High density development is really great. It's uh, from a sustainability perspective, I would say. When you have high density, you have more people in a smaller area. So you're not facing issues of urban sprawl, which has been a big issue. And I think in like the 80s, to the early 2000s where you saw a lot of suburban flight. And the new consensus is like, let's build up the cities, let's do high density development, let's focus on smaller places, living spaces with larger communal areas is another really big trend that we're seeing in urban development. And kind of that focus on bringing in the environment into some of these places instead of working around the environment, I think is the other big consensus that we're seeing now in urban development happening. So working within your landscape, instead of just like bulldozing a forest and saying like, we're going to put a lot here. How can we work within nature? But that is a very select style of development where you're looking at green infrastructure. Uh, It's not everywhere, especially when you have space. I think when you have a ton of space, like what you see in the Midwest, what you see in the South, you kind of have this free range to do whatever you want, which is why nothing is like a true consensus. And then you have areas like Boston, like Chicago, like New York, where you don't have a ton of space. So you really have to be creative and think high density and think mixed use, where you have retail on the bottom, maybe some office spaces above that. And then above that, you have residential living. So one building has three different uses. But again, you have to work within zoning to make that happen. So there are some, some general thoughts of what is great and some traditional thoughts of what is great. And I think it's very case by case as to how it works. But my thought process is higher density, mixed use development that's inclusionary, meaning different types of uh, economic classes within a building, so affordable housing and market rate housing is the better way to go. Should we coin that as the NYU Wagner School of Urban Planning? <laughs> Process framework? Um, I, I will honestly say some of that is yes. Uh, and also a lot of it comes from my undergrad learning. Um, I studied at UMass Amherst, which is more uh, regional planning, um, but they really focused on sustainable, holistic planning. So I would say it was, it was very deeply ingrained in me from even my undergrad. But NYU also promotes that. Yes, I will say that. <laughs> it sounds fun. It's like you're an artist of the city and every city has a different canvas in which you must design and reshape what's, you know, the art that you're trying to create. Yeah, it's definitely like a big puzzle, which I really like. I like the creativity that you can have in it. 
um, I like that you can do a lot with a very small thing. Just changing one small thing, like where can we put businesses? It makes a huge difference in a community. Even um, this past semester, I did a project in the South Bronx and we wanted to talk about bringing in fresh food options because they really live in a food desert, which again, for someone who isn't fully aware of what that means, that means that people don't have easy access to fresh food options. They might have to travel within like five or 10 miles to get to a grocery store. Um, and one of the things that was so shocking was that most of the South Bronx community that we were working in, the fresh food uh, requirement for zoning was 12,000 square feet, which is a pretty big building. And I think that that was a big reason that it was halting a lot of that opportunity. But the grocery store that's really like two blocks away from my house in Carroll Gardens is like 6,000 square feet. There's no reason that they should have a requirement for 12,000 square feet. So if we lowered that, think about all the amazing opportunities that you can do for that community. You have business opportunities, you have fresh food opportunities, you lower health risks. So that, like one small thing can just do such an amazing uh, thing for a community. It can really just change someone's life. And I think that's so great. And you're also working with the community. I mean, I, I'm a huge proponent of working with a community as opposed to uh, overhead doing a job not for the community, if that makes sense. Like, I think it needs to be really community-based grassroots. I think that that's a huge thing, um, which also is not a huge consensus in urban planning. A lot of times you see this like overhead flight, drop a plan, leave, go on to the next thing. Yeah. Um, it's yeah, a, that's why it's like such a great opportunity. Yeah, it's kind of like a top-down, bottom-up framework. And but I, we in these podcasts I've been doing, I've been I've been hearing a lot about whether it's urban planning or whatever it is, mutual aid projects, uh, social entrepreneurship, that you like really need to focus on designing with the end user in mind. Yes, yes, that's so huge, and and I love the top-down, bottom-up because that's really what it is. Yeah. When you, when you just go into a community and you don't really understand the community and you just, again, put this like cookie cutter plan down of like, this is what works in another community. I'm gonna say that this works in your community. You're not gonna get those really great results. And maybe you do, sometimes I'm sure you will because you know two plus two equals four and sometimes you just have the right formula that something will be successful. But that doesn't mean that you're gonna have that community spirit in there. And that's the other thing that I think we as urban planners really need to consider is the community and the community's voice and the community's identity. And if you're not working within that, you're gonna lose that community. And that's where you can see a lot of gentrification happening because you lose that community voice. And so you're just kind of pushing out who made that community so great and you're getting in what you want the community to be. And that's not great. That's not really what urban planning should be. Yeah. Okay, Jacqueline, we're gonna end this with, uh... Jacqueline Spade, hot take. I'm dying to ask you this question. Yeah. You are given the top-down control of New York City. What is one thing that you would do right now, boom, takes one year to implement that has your best impact on the city? Ooh, I think probably one of the biggest things that I would do that I think would probably have a big impact but not necessarily maybe everyone's idea of a big impact I would put in more green spaces I would 
really add more parks into communities that don't have access to green spaces. And I would try to also connect some green spaces and make them more user-friendly. I think that that would be where I would put my focus. I think when you add in green spaces, again, you have a lot of health benefits from it. It makes um, property around those areas worth more naturally. And I think it's a basic right that everyone should have some green space around them to run and play and to hang out and to cool off and to have some fresh air. I like it. I like it. <laughs> okay. Jacqueline, thank you for joining us on the podcast today. I enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you for having me anytime. I love talking about urban planning. I love talking about zoning. I just think that there are really great opportunities there to do some really great work in communities. Great. Well, that's going to do it for today, folks. Thanks for tuning in. Catch you next time on NYU Wagner Review podcast series.